food. First Corinthians. This is called food. The bread of life, the Word of God. We believe at Woodland Hills Church that the kingdom of God is built in our heart and built in the world, world through spirit and truth. In spirit, we worship God passionately. We want to invest everything, every ounce that we have in, in praising Him. And then we want truth. We want to just do some careful digesting of the food that the Lord's given us. That's the Word of God. And so we have a proclamation time. We have a worship and teaching time. This is the teaching time. And so we're going through 1 Corinthians, and we're not in any particular hurry. I want to break it down verse by verse. Let's start with verse 10 as we can continue our study. Chapter 1, verse 10. Paul says this, Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Note there that Paul doesn't appeal on his own authority. He appeals on the authority of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say because I'm an apostle. He doesn't say because I'm good-looking. He doesn't say because I'm a good speaker. He says on the authority of Jesus Christ, I'm appealing to you. That all of you be in agreement and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. Have a vision. Have a vision and rally around it is what he's saying. Verse 11, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, that's the people in, in Chloe's household, um, one of the households that comprise the church at Corinth, uh, they've told me that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you is saying something like this, I belong to Paul. I belong to Apollos. I belong to Cephas. Or, I belong to Christ. Then Paul asked this all-important question, Has Christ been divided? Was the Son of God dismembered and no one told me? How is it that, you're, that you have these divisions? Was Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Oh yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. The Lord, when He inspires the Word, He leaves people's personality intact. And so here's Paul like, I don't remember who I baptized, but it's not important. Why? Verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel. Note that contrast. And not with eloquent wisdom. Apparently Paul was not that good of a speaker. He didn't send me to preach with eloquent wisdom. And Paul turns the vice into a virtue. And that's, that's a good thing. So that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. Let's pick it apart. First, let's pray. Father, let your word come alive. Let it be anointed. Let the Spirit of God that was present here in worship, Lord, invade these words and build the kingdom of God in our hearts and our minds and our lives and then in the world, Lord. Help us to think like you think and to learn from this passage, Lord. Teach us what we need to hear. Lord, it is your job, not mine, to uh, take this word and uh, cultivate it into our hearts and minds. So, Lord God, be moving as I speak, however it comes out, to do that, to accomplish all that you will. And we give you all the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I want to bring out a couple of points here in the next 20, 25 minutes uh, about these eight verses. I want to say a word about baptism, because baptism is mentioned in here. I want to say a word about the basis of Paul's appeal to unity, because that's mentioned here. And then I'm going to bring out two words of warning that flow out of Paul's confrontation of the divisions that were occurring at Corinth. Let me first talk a little bit about baptism. There is, many scholars of world religions have noted, um, a perpetual tendency on the, on the heart of fallen people to put their trust in things that they can control. 
uh, especially when it comes to religion. Uh, there's a tendency of the fallen mind and the fallen heart to uh, find security in rituals or in formulas uh, or in uh, uh, various spells that they can cast or whatever. In all world religions, you find that. The idea here is that there are things you can do, tangible things that you can do, formulas that you can say, spells that you can cast, deeds that you can do, that will appease the gods so the gods will be happy with you. And if you do these deeds, the gods are happy. And if you don't do these, de these deeds, the gods aren't happy. But it's not about a relationship in these pagan religions. It's about, uh, it's about a ritual. The trust is put in the ritual. The gods really don't care where you are at personally. They want to make sure that you've done the rituals. Now, that's a universal tendency of fallen people. Sometimes that has crept into Christianity, I believe. Sometimes I believe some people have, have tended to see, unwittingly, with all the good intentions of the world, have tended to see baptism as sort of a magical ritual. The idea here is this. If you do baptism, however they understand baptism, whether it's as infants or as adults, some people think that if you just do that ritual, you're okay with God. And if you don't do that ritual, you're not okay with God. If you do this ritual, then your sins are forgiven. And if you don't do that ritual, then your sins aren't forgiven. Sometimes they go beyond that and they say, you've got to do this ritual in a particular way. The church that I was saved in uh, believed that uh, unless you were baptized as an adult by immersion with the, name, with the words, in Jesus' name, said over you, Unless that happened, you were, your sins weren't forgiven. If, if someone said, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that didn't count, your sins still weren't forgiven. If you didn't go all the way under the water, that didn't count, your sins still weren't forgiven. I mean, there's all these qualifications. Um, so you have God up there, you know, in love with you, and maybe you love God, but you're going to go to hell because of this technicality. Oh, the wrong words were said over you. Sorry, you've got to go to hell. And, and it, see, that's what I mean by trusting in a ritual more than, than, than a relationship. I have had not a few people at Willow Hills Church who have been worried about their kids um, because we don't baptize babies here. We believe that baptism is for adults. And they've worried that maybe their kids, if their kids died, they're not going to be saved because they weren't baptized. You see? And the idea here is that if, if you just do this ritual, then God loves them. But if you don't do the ritual, well, then they're going to be lost forever. Let me say a couple of words about this, okay? The first word is, comes right out of the passage that we preached on here this morning. Note here that Paul says, God didn't send me to baptize. He sent me to preach the gospel. I submit to you this. It is utterly unthinkable that Paul believed that baptism was for salvation, and yet wherever he went, he didn't, he, he didn't feel like he was sent to baptize. Think about it. If Paul believed that, that, that baptism was necessary for salvation, if Paul's trust was in a ritual, how could he possibly go to Corinth and not be sent to baptize? Because he was sent to save people. In fact, if baptism wasn't necessary for salvation, how could Paul contrast baptism with preaching the gospel? He says, God didn't send me to baptize. He sent me to preach. Um, if he believed that this ritual was the way that you get your sins forgiven, the, the sort of technicality that God's looking for, I submit to you that he could never have drawn that contrast. Paul thinks that baptism is important, but it's not something that, that either makes or breaks you in terms of, of, of your salvation. The second thing is this. In all of our thinking about theological topics, it's so crucial to stay centered on the person of Jesus Christ. Whenever you confront a theological issue, a theological question, ask this. Is, is this idea consistent with the person of Jesus Christ or not? Because the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the final definitive revelation of God. Jesus says in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says he's the Word of God. He says he's the image of God. He, sees, he says he's the form of God. No one has seen God at any time, John 1.18 says. But the only begotten Son of God, He has declared Him. The point is this. 
the final, whatever else you think about God, know this, the criteria for what God is like is found in the person of Jesus Christ. So ask the question, did you ever see Jesus, did, did, did anything about his behavior, did anything about his ministry ever suggest that he put a ritual in, 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 as a condition for his relating to people? Can you picture Jesus doing this? Allow the little children to come unto me. Oh yes, but those ones who haven't been baptized, send them away to eternal fire. I just can't see Jesus doing that. That's radically inconsistent with everything Jesus Christ was about. His ministry wasn't about encouraging people to trust in a ritual. It was about encouraging people to enter into a relationship with Him. Which leads to the third point. Throughout the New Testament, you find this emphasis over and over and over again. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Over 120 times, salvation is... is uh, is associated with repentance and faith. And they're two sides of the same coin. And faith is about putting your trust in the person of Jesus Christ. The thief on the cross never was baptized. But Jesus said to him, Today you shall be with me in paradise. Why? Because this guy, for all of his wrong information, had, had at least this much knowledge of Jesus that somehow this guy is my way into heaven. So he put his trust in Jesus Christ and he was saved. The point is this. As important as baptism is, it is not the means by which God comes to like you or save you or, or apply the blood of Jesus Christ to your life or anything of the sort. Baptism is, is, is the sealing of our covenant with God. And it's important. The Bible is, it assumes that all believers will be baptized. It is to our salvation what a wedding is to a marriage. It's the ceremony, the standard ceremony by which that, that is sealed. It's the means by which we publicly declare that we've identified with Jesus Christ. The means by which we, we identify with His death going down into the water. We identify with His life coming up out of the water. It's important. It's an ongoing reminder of our identity in Christ. That's why Paul, in a lot of controversies like this one, he appeals to it. He's saying, wait a minute, how can you be divided? Think about your baptism. You know, who owns you? Think about your baptism. I don't own you. You weren't baptized in my name. Baptism is important. But you've got to know that it's not magic. It's not the way that you get right with God. I feel for people who worry about their kids because they haven't done a ritual for them. I worry about their view of God. That God's up there that, you know, waiting for this ritual to be done before He's going to embrace them. And I'm concerned for people. And there are a lot of them here in, in Scandinavian Minnesota. I worry about, about people who come to trust their baptism as their own way, their own means, their own security for being right with God. Somehow, if you're baptized, that means that you're automatically in regardless of your heart, regardless of how you're living. And there are people who put their trust in that. Or some put it in a certain interpretation of communion. Or some maybe uh, put it in, in, in saying certain prayers at certain times. You know, external things. Now, look it. Baptism is wonderful and it's important. And communion is wonderful and it's important. And, and, and if saying particular prayers uh, at particular times is something that's important to you, then praise God for it. But you've got to know this. You've got to know this, and this is the heart of the New Testament. Those things don't, aren't what make you right with God. If you're right with God, you may do those things. But those aren't things that make you right with God. What God wants is not a ritualistic performance on your part. What God wants is your heart. Amen? What God wants is you. He wants a relationship with you. He wants, he wants your heart, He wants your mind, He wants your soul, He wants your aspirations, He wants your ambitions, He wants all of you. He wants to be in a loving, passionate relationship with you. And where that exists, if the rituals help that, praise God for it, and they do help that, some of them do, but there should never be a replacement for it. Don't put your trust in external things like that. I'm right with God because I do this. Going to church can be that. I'm right with God because I go to church. Now, if you're right with God, you'll go to church, but going to church doesn't make you right with God. You know, if you, you, can, you can go to church all your life and be as unsaved as, 
as the next guy, you know. What is, what is crucial here is your heart. Does he have your heart? Okay, a second point that comes out of this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, is this. I want us to notice something here. Real briefly, this is a three-second caveat. I just find it interesting. Paul's, look at the basis upon which Paul uh, appeals to the Corinthians to be united. This is really interesting. He doesn't say, Corinthians, will you quit squabbling because you're giving me a headache? He doesn't say, Corinthians, will you quit squabbling because you're undermining your evangelism? He doesn't say, you know, Corinthians, will you quit squabbling because, uh, you know, you're, 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 you'd have better church growth if you just were united. Paul doesn't appeal to anything practical as the foundation, as the basis, as the reason why he's telling the Corinthians to be united. What he appeals to is the nature of Jesus Christ. Look at that. He says, one, who owns you? Remember your baptism. It's Jesus Christ. Who are you identified with? It's Jesus Christ. And is Jesus Christ divided? No. Therefore, you should not be divided. Uh, we, we, we noted this about four weeks ago, and about four verses ago, um, in, in the book of Corinthians. But Paul says to the Corinthians, Saints, you are holy, but you've been called to be holy. This is what, for those of you who have been around Woodland Hills for very long, you'll understand this language. This is another example of Paul putting the indicative before the imperative. Don't you love that? Uh, putting the fact before the ought, the is before the ought. The reality before the behavior. What I mean is this. Paul says, you are holy, therefore live holy. You are righteous, therefore live righteous. You are children of God, therefore live like children of God. He doesn't say live, be holy in order to get holy, be righteous in order to get uh, righteous, act like children of God in order to become the children of God. That's putting the cart before the horse. The reality precedes the behavior. It's like if I'm going to get the Greg foot here and let's say we're having a board meeting and he's throwing a temper tantrum like a three-year-old. And so I grab him and I say, Greg, Greg, wake up now. You're acting like a kid. Will you just act your age? Act like a grown-up. Now, I'm not saying, Greg, act like a grown-up in order to become a grown-up because he's already a grown-up. I'm saying because you're a grown-up, will you act like a grown-up? You see, the, uh, the, the indicative, you're a grown-up, precedes the imperative. Act like a grown-up. So also, the indicative of who you are in Christ precedes the imperative of how you should live because of who you are in Christ. And all that is to say this. Paul now says that of the church as a whole. And this is just a... An awareness that we need to walk with. Paul doesn't say, get your act together in order to be a united church. He says, because you're a united church, therefore get your act together. The, imperative, the indicative precedes the imperative. Is Christ divided? You are the body of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Christ dismembered? No. How can you act like you're, like you're not united? What's real here is this. Here's the indicative. What's real is that. There's one church in the world. you know that? There's one church composed of all true believers, all people who put their trust in Jesus Christ. There's one church, there's one bride, and it's not a dismembered bride. There's one temple, and it's not a torn apart temple. That's the church. There's one army, and it's not a divided army. Um, now, we try to act divided, don't we? And we're good at it. We try to act dismembered, and we're good at it. We try to act like we're not on the same team, and we're good at it. But what we need to know is this. What's real is not the way we're acting. What's real is what Jesus died for. And He died for the church to be united. And at a real level, we are united. It's kind of like this. Here's a bizarre, here's a bizarre uh, analogy. I don't even know if this is politically correct. I didn't have time to check it out. But, 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 but let me you know, just use it. Uh, people who are joined, they used to call them Siamese twins. I don't know what they call them now. Uh, what the correct term is. But, but people who are joined, their bodies are joined together. Right? They're, they're what? Conjoined? Okay. Conjoined twins. Um, okay, I hope the twins, if they're born at different times, that'd really be complicated. Um, think about it. No, rather, don't think about it. Okay, they're, they're joined. They're conjoined twins. Now, they can, 
let's say they get in a fight and they decide, you know, they're going to ignore each other. I'm not talking to you. You don't exist. Uh, I'm not joined to anybody. I, I'm not united to anybody. I'm going to live my own life. I'm going to do my own thing. And this person's thinking, well, I'm going to live my life and I'm going to do my own thing. Uh, I think it's going to get complicated really fast here as they're trying to walk in different directions and, and to try to do different things and, and whatnot. Um, they're not going to be very effective at living their life, you know, uh, but they can pretend as long as they want to pretend that they're not joined. But the reality is that they are joined, and the sooner they realize it, the more effective, the better their lives are going to be. I think you'd agree with that. So also with the church. The fact that the church globally... Now, of course, we're not going to agree on a lot of things. We have doctrinal differences, whatever. I'm not talking about trying to agree on every, on every point. I'm talking about working as a team and getting along together. We can act like we're not part of the same team if we want to, and that's what we do. But the reality is that we're joined. And when we don't act like, like, like we're, we're joined, that just means that we're ineffective, but it doesn't destroy the reality. We are one in the body of Christ. And what God is doing to the church today is, is basically saying this. Like I was saying to Greg, wake up! Grow up! Start acting what is real. And what is real is that you're on the same team. What's real is that you're part of one bride. Become of one mind, become of one purpose, and not create a unity that's not there, but rather manifest the unity that is already there. Praise God. And it's happening. It's happening. Praise God. He's, he's bringing this to bear. But just keep walking with that awareness. We are already one. Right now, all over the world, there's one church that's worshiping Jesus Christ, and we're part of that. And I love just walking with that awareness. Hallelujah. Okay, two, two words of warning that come out of uh, this passage where Paul is confronting the Corinthians. The problem here is that you've got some Christians who are saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, and then there's a sectarian group that, that thinks they're superior, they say, well, we're of Christ himself. And that would be a great thing, except they're doing it in competition with the Paul group and the Cephas group and the Apollo group. Clearly there are factions here aligned with particular leaders in particular theologies. And it's causing the church to splinter, and that's what Paul's confronting. Two things that we can learn and need to learn from this. Number one, warning number one. Be careful. Be careful not to idealize, idolize your leaders. One of the problems that's going on here is that some people are idolizing their leaders and putting them above others and actually seeing who they follow as a source of life. I belong to. It's kind of your identity. It's kind of, it gives you worth. It gives you a sense of security. It gives you a sense of being special. I follow this person. Oh, well, I follow this person. Be careful not to idolize your leaders. Now, God uses leaders. Leaders are okay. Leaders are good. Leaders are necessary. And it's okay to like your leaders. It's okay to respect them. It's okay to uh, say, I love you to them once in a while. And by the way, I really appreciate all the cards that uh, we pastors get. Uh, this church is really good at that. Um, and I'm, I'm not trying to like fish for stuff here. Like, <laughs> no one sent me a birthday card. No. Um, it's okay to do that. Th th that's normal. And in God's economy, He uses leaders. God, God gifts. All of us are ministers, equally ministers. We all have different gifts. And some of the people have gifts that are, that are about leadership, whether it's administration, whether it's about worship leading, whether it's about preaching, whether it's about forming small groups or whatever. They have gifts for that, and so people naturally follow them. That's an okay thing. But there is, just like there's a tendency for people to ritualize things, there's a tendency for people to idolize other people. You take a person who's very gifted, maybe they've got a cool personality, or maybe they've got a good way of thinking about things, or maybe they're, they're, they, they speak good or, or whatever, uh, some kind of charismatic figure, and the natural fallen tendency is to kind of put them a notch above everybody else. They're, they're sort of just up there a little bit more than everybody else. 
The fallen tendency is, in religious circles, to think that these people are a little bit closer to God. They're, they're a little bit more spiritual. And, and they, they can tell us what God's thinking. And they mediate God's knowledge to us. They mediate God's presence to us. Maybe they even mediate something about God's salvation. And when that happens, you see, people become uh, too dependent on other people, these leaders. Uh, they put these, uh, these leaders up on a pedestal. They surrender some of their own, their own uh, thinking to them sometimes. Many times they surrender their money to them. They lose their independence. And when that happens, you see, it's damaging because God doesn't want a mediated relationship with you. He wants a direct relationship with you. I love my wife and I don't want to have to go through somebody to get to my wife. I want a direct relationship. Jesus Christ is your, your, your groom. He doesn't want to have a mediated relationship with you. He wants a direct relationship with you. It hinders your relationship with God when, when, when leaders become too important to you. And in fact, it causes divisions in the church because now... Groups start competing about which leader is best. The most extreme version of this, of course, is cults. There's some of you reading the paper this morning about this Uganda cult. This is so sad. This is so... Uh, man, I, I, something just, just really get me. And, and, and stuff like this just gets me. When you, it's like a Jonestown thing. You had 235 people burned alive in this church who were following this, this cultic leader. Because uh, he predicted the end of the world and it didn't happen, so I guess he was mad or something. So he set everyone on fire. I, I just, um, man, does that bother me. You see, stuff like that, you know why that happens? Is because there's somebody who no doubt has a gift, no doubt they're charismatic, no doubt they can wow people, and people turn off their thinking button, and they stop thinking on their own, they just say, I will follow you. And it ends up in, in stuff like this. Now, in churches, we don't have uh, usually that extreme of a problem, but Christian churches can do something like that. Where you take a leader, a gifted person, and you, and you idolize them, you put them up a little bit above the other, and you end up having people saying, I am a Paul. Oh, that great leader Paul. No, I'm of Cephas, that great leader Cephas. I'm of Apollos, that great leader Apollos. Or I'm of Billy Graham, or I'm of whatever. Now, we've got to hear this. And, and this is just the New Testament teaching. We've got to hear it loud and clear. Thank God, God does gift leaders. Uh, there's an authority structure to the church. It's necessary, and it is good. And God wants to use leaders of various sorts with various gifts to bless the people of God and equip the people of God, and that's all well and good. But always know this. Keep this in mind. This is, this is Christianity 101, but we need to hear it uh, over and over again. Um, there is only one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Jesus Christ. Amen? Who's not just a man. Praise God. He's God become a man. There's only one mediator. It's not Billy Graham. Uh, it's not Charles Stanley. It's not anyone. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. There's one Creator. His name is Jesus Christ. There's one Redeemer. There's one who gave His life for you. There's one who rescued you from hell. There's one who delivered you from Satan. And it's no one here on this earth right now. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who became a man and died for us. He is the only one. He is the only one to whom uh, exaltation is to be given. He's the only one that is a notch above the rest, and He's way above the rest. Amen? He's the one to whom all praise and all adoration and all worship is due. His name is Jesus Christ. Amen? Hallelujah. And if anyone starts competing with that, run away. Run away. I don't care how gifted they are. If, 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 if they're in competition with that, um, the Lord doesn't, this is, this is where you get the biblical truth that our God is a jealous God. Why? Because it's bad for us to be chasing after false gods. And when some leader becomes sort of a, a, a source of life for you, to the point where you belong to them in any sense, well then something screwy is going on and run the other way. The job of Christian leadership, we've got to land on this. 
The, the point of, 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 of a leadership within the Christian church is to point people to Jesus Christ, not to point to uh, ourselves. The job of a leader is to bring people under the authority of Jesus Christ, not to tyrannize people with your own authority. Amen? The job of a Christian leader is to serve the body of Christ, not to be served by the body of Christ. The, 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 the job of a Christian leader is to get people into a direct relationship with Jesus Christ, not a mediated uh, uh, relationship with Jesus Christ through them. The job of a Christian leader is to equip the saints and empower the saints, not disempower the saints by making them dependent on, on, on themselves. The job of a Christian leader is like John the Baptist who said, I must decrease that he must increase. Praise God. I, I am, I've got to become small that he can become large. That's why Paul said, you know what, I didn't do it with eloquent words. I'm not trying to impress you here. Rather, when I came to you, it was in demonstration of spirit and power. Why? So the cross of Christ could be magnified. So that no one's saying, oh, what a great person Paul is. No. Paul understood that his job was to point people to Jesus Christ. That's why Paul is mad. This is, this is great. There's a group. You know, Paul's got his group there. There's Apollos, there's Cephas, and there's a Paul group. And see, if Paul would have had any ego needs, any self-esteem issues, he would have felt good about that. Well, at least I got a group, you know. Whoa. You know, and that's kind of cool, you know. And maybe he would if he was a needy people. The worst thing that can happen is for a needy person to get in the ministry, I'm telling you. Because when, when you get a needy person doing that shepherding, the, it ends up that the sheep start feeding the shepherd rather than the other way around. You know, you can only minister out of fullness, and the fullness has got to come through Jesus Christ. And if you're not getting it from Jesus Christ, you start getting it from the congregation, and you are on your way to spiritual abuse. If Paul would have been needy, he would have tried to cultivate the Paul group against the Cephas group and Apollos group. You know, he would have tried to impress them or whatever. But Paul is a man of God. He knows what his job is. And so he's mad at the fact that there's this group that's trying to compliment him by saying we are a Paul. What Paul is saying there is this. I didn't baptize you. I wasn't crucified for you. You don't belong to me. Uh, you know, don't rally around me. Rally around Jesus Christ. Don't get excited about me. You get excited about Jesus Christ. And the only job that I've got is to get you excited about Jesus Christ, to point you away from me to the person of Jesus Christ. That's Paul's mindset in 1 Corinthians 1, and it's got to be the mindset of every person, every leader that, that, that's in the church. When that doesn't happen, divisions occur, abuse occurs, and everything gets crazy. That's why Jesus warned about this. I've got to move on to my next point. But Jesus warned about this. He said, don't call anyone on earth your father. Don't call anyone on earth, you know, master. Uh, don't call, I almost want to say, don't call anyone on earth reverend. Huh? Because, uh, what does that mean? To revere. To revere. No, you know what? Reverend Jesus. Uh, you know, this is a church of Reverend Jesus. Revere Jesus Christ. The rest of us, there's only one thing that can be said about everybody else, whether you're a leader or not, and that's that we're sinners saved by grace. And that has a beautiful way of leveling the playing field, doesn't it? Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. My la my, the second warning that I'm going to just deal with real quickly here in five minutes. Uh, but it's an important one. I'm just going to just flag it. Most scholars believe that at the, at, the, at the foundation of this disagreement between Paul and Apollos and Cephas was a theological disagreement. Now, it wasn't a contradiction, but there was a different emphasis. Um, we know that Peter was, was much more of a Jewish Christian holding to Judaism. Paul was sort of this radical uh, uh, apostle to the Gentiles. And they didn't see eye to eye in everything. You can read about that in Galatians. Uh, the church back then, like the church now, didn't see eye to eye in everything. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's just a normal thing. In this world, you're going to have that kind of stuff. Um, but what happened was that these, these people were aligning themselves with different theological parties. And that was becoming a point of division. The second warning is this. You don't, ideal, don't idolize your leaders. Don't idolize your theology. Don't idolize your theology. Now, I want you to hear me on this. 
Theology is important. Uh, it, it's important that we, that we have in common certain core biblical doctrines that we agree on. Uh, our statement of faith that we rally around. And it's important to hold those with passion and to hold those with conviction. And it's important even to um, have other theological opinions about more peripheral and disputable matters that you hold with passion and conviction. That's not only okay, that's necessary. We should be passionate about everything that we believe. But know this. There's a world of difference between believing something passionately and getting life from it. Okay? Now, now follow me on this. Um, our life, what I mean by life is our source of worth, self-esteem, our hope, our identity is to come from Jesus Christ directly. Our relationship with Jesus Christ is to be our, the source of our life. God is to be the source of our life, not what we think about God. Now, what you think about God is very important. I'm not saying that's not important, but that shouldn't be the thing that feeds you. When your theology is a source of life, then being right in your theology is a source of life. And now being right becomes something that's part of your religion. So if you have people there for whom it is their religious conviction that they are always right. And if you believe that you are always right, then if someone disagrees with you, you're not in a very good position to listen to them, to learn from them. In fact, now if someone, uh, if someone says that something that you believe is wrong, it's a personal matter. Your identity is on the line. Your worth is being attacked. You see what I'm saying here? And that's what causes anger, it's what causes fights, it's what causes division. God calls us to get life from Jesus Christ. As important as theology is, it should not be a source of life to us. When what we think... Someone said this, and I think it's a, probably a true statement, I don't know. But they said the deepest crevice of hell is reserved for those theologians who love their theology more than God. Think about it. Uh, you know, it is possible to be totally right in your theology and be guilty of idolatry. Why? Because you're worshiping your theology and you're getting life from it and you are Mr. or Mrs. Right. And anyone who disagrees with you, boom, there's that anger. I used to wonder how, how it's possible. This is the saddest, oddest, weirdest, tragic fact of church history. How it is that Christians sometimes have persecuted other people because of what they believe. How it is that sometimes Christians, Christians have put to death people because of their beliefs. John Calvin burned Michael Servetus at the stake because he wouldn't say the Son is eternal. Those, those four words, the Son is eternal. He wouldn't say that, so he burned him alive. And I used to wonder, how, how is it possible in the name of the Savior who taught us to lay down our life for everybody, who taught us to bless our enemies, pray for those who persecute you, how is it that in His name we are now putting people to death because of what they believe? Now, Michael Servetus was dead wrong in his belief. But what, what's going on that we're now going to try to convince him of the wrongness of his position by setting him on fire? To a lesser degree, this happens all over the place when we maybe don't set people on fire, but maybe we'd like to. You know, when there's anger, when there's animosity uh, involved in, in disagreements, and this applies not just to theology, but to politics or, or to where you're going to put the couch in the, in the living room. When your identity is wrapped up in it, when this is a source of life to you, when being right is what it's about, you can't listen, you can't dialogue, you can't. This now becomes the, the ultimate thing, and all that happens is you start shouting with one another. You know, there's nothing constructive going on here. When Jesus Christ is the source of your life, your beliefs are very important. We need core beliefs that we rally around. And it's okay to have beliefs and convictions on peripheral matters that, 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 you know, you're passionate about. Great. But you know what? To be passionate about it doesn't mean you get your life from it. And if your life is coming from Jesus Christ, the fact that I know that I'm a child of God because of what Jesus did for me, that's my life. Everything else is negotiable. And so if you come and say, you know what, Greg, you're really off on the view of the future. No, I don't have to go, M2, M2, I'm not, M2, I'm not, M2. You know, it's like, okay, this is about my view, not about me. 
So it's out here. Let's talk about this. And in fact, if you correct it, it's like, oh, thank you. Because I, I, I like to have, you know, right theology. And so now, now we can talk calmly. We can talk out of love. We can talk in relationship. Differences do not, does not mean division. It becomes division when you own it. It's part of your identity and whatnot. And then you've got to protect yourself with your ego. So it is talking politics. So it is talking where should we put the couch in the living room. Get your life from Jesus Christ. And then you can talk about things calmly. And, and, and you know what? God never said that it's our job to convince everyone of all of our opinions. It's okay to say, you know what, I guess we're just going to disagree on this one, and you go your way. And you pray for them that God will sometimes show them how wrong they are. You know, <laughs> I do it all the time. You know? <laughs> Don't worship your opinions about God. Worship God. Don't idolize your leaders. Get blessed by them, but follow Jesus Christ. Uh, hold your, your, your faith passionately, but always let it be out here. Hold all your opinions out here so you can talk. You know what? If your opinions are true, you have nothing to fear. You don't have to shout. Raising your voice doesn't make them truer. Uh, you, know, you, can, you can listen and, and, and they'll stand up under it. Divisions come when our eyes get off of Jesus Christ and they get on other people or they get on our theologies about Jesus Christ. I pray that God would help us to keep a singular mind, singular attitude, and singular purpose as we go to carry out the kingdom of God in this world, praise God. There'll always be, there'll always be uh, uh, disagreements and differences. I know we need to agree on some core values and some core beliefs, but there's going to be differences. That's an okay thing. And we can learn from each other by talking about them as long as we keep on reminding ourselves that our life comes from Jesus Christ. And we keep on blessing the person that we're talking to. See that light beam of blessing come upon them. Praise God. And God will use even the differences for His glory. Let's stand. In closing prayer, will the prayer team come forward here? I want to invite you this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've never made that commitment. You are, the Bible says, in danger. And God wants to rescue you. He wants to love you. He wants to make you His child. This morning, if you've never made that commitment in, in, in your life, this isn't a ritual we're talking about. It's a relationship. I invite you to come forward and talk to these folks about that. And they'd be happy to pray with you.